Welcome to the Dave Tang Show, part of the Ring of Podcast Network, presented by Major W Media. Thank you a lot, Tango, as always. Sign up for Discord if you haven't done so at MajorDemoMedia.com. We have great links to our partners, Any Day, Athletic Brewing, Cometeer Coffee, East Fork Pottery, and of course, all things Momofuku, discount codes galore. And you can visit us at shop.momofuku to use that or visit us nationwide at places like Target, Whole Foods, and now Sprouts and Kroger's, etc. Thank you, guys. You got me solo today. Chris Hying is working on a bunch of projects. We are slowly but surely getting the studio ready. If you haven't noticed, we are starting a fledgling YouTube channel, and that's Major Doma Media, and we're populating it with things. We also have the LG channel. If you have an LG TV, you can visit us there on the TV. There's a, Every smart TV has basically a cable box, and we have a channel on LG. We have a bunch of things in the works. Very excited to talk about a few of those things coming up, but you have me solo today. I'm going to be doing a three things, a slice, an ass Dave, and a quick moif. You know, will be helping me out. But before, I, I just wanted to say congratulations to the team at Fox Face Natural. They've been getting a lot of great press. Helen Rosner of The New Yorker. She has a great newsletter. If you haven't signed up, she's one of the best minds and writers out there. And she's been talking about some really good things. She, she spoke about, oh my gosh. So many good conversations of, that we need in food, but she highlighted a restaurant recently called Fox Face Natural. There's a sandwich shop uh, on like St. Mark's, I believe it was, opened up like 2017, 2018, and they did interesting combinations. I didn't really know too much about it. I had some of those sandwiches uh, since it was in the East Village. Very t- tasty. And, you know, a couple months back, people were saying, hey, there's this really cool restaurant. I don't even know if people associated it with the original Fox Face that serves sandwiches, but it's called Fox Face Natural, and it's been getting great reviews. Helen Rosner wrote about it in her newsletter, and it just got three stars in the New York Times, and people are really raving about it. I just wanted to say shout out to Chef David Santos. He is the the, the chef, executive chef behind it. They're, they're, They're founded by two owners that I didn't know about, that they weren't even in the hospitality industry. They were in the software business. But I'm just happy that David Santos, who's been in the business a long time, he, he, he's run a lot, of, a lot of different jobs, and he's been doing it a long time. And I'm just happy that he's gotten his due. He was the chef at Loro. I know he can't even pronounce that properly, but it was in the West Village. He partnered with Simon Kim, who has done the, the Korean Steakhouse thing. But, you know, I always thought the food he made was delicious, and he's had a long journey to get to a place where I think people now are recognizing that he's really talented and I'm just happy that he's gotten his due. So check out that restaurant. I'm just also excited that it's a different kind of restaurant. We were just talking recently about things not being exactly cutting edge per se in New York and a restaurant that's doing proteins and flavors that are non-traditional but still delicious it's very exciting and it gives me a lot of 71 clinton fresh food vibes and if you don't know about that restaurant i'd argue it's one of the most important restaurants in american history it really set the tone and and changed the face of dining in new york it was the first restaurant that did really exquisite 
adventurous, cutting edge, but really approachable food by Wiley Dufresne. It was his restaurant that he opened up before WD-50 and highly influential in my life. I remember eating there in 1999 and it made a lasting impression. Most importantly, it showed me that good food could be done anywhere. It didn't have to be done in the traditional trappings of sort of Midtown or Upper East Side. So really excited about this restaurant. And I hope that we're going to see more restaurants that are doing things to their own sort of beat of their own drum, as they say. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. I always get asked, hey, what do you look for in a restaurant? So the previous pod, we talked about what I like on a menu. And if you've ever dined with cooks or people that work in restaurants at any other restaurant, and you're not dining with other, you're just dining with one cook or one front of the house person, and you're at a nice restaurant, say a tasting menu restaurant, you're always going to see that person. And when I say always, always. And if they don't, I feel like something might be wrong. They're always going to look at the fork. They're going to feel the spoon and the knife. When no one's looking, they're going to try to peek a look at who's the, you know, the maker of the plate. They're going to feel the glassware. And they're like, hmm, you know, there's great stemware that's not Zalto. And if you don't know Zalto, it's, you know, it's, I don't even know, best in class. That's widely accessible. I think it's best in class for your stemware, for, for your wines. Um, there's a sense of, huh, this is really nice. And how do I, how did they afford it? Or man, you're thinking to yourselves, the polishing must be a total pain in the ass. Or is there's just a sense of envy. You're like, oh my God, they get to serve plate on beautiful plates like this. And it's not just about cooking the food. It's the presentation on the plate that matters as well. It's the, the Giridon. That's the, the trolley that you might see a lot of restaurants using today doing tableside service. There are many classes of Giridons. There's many kinds of trolleys out there. There's cheap, middle, and there's super high-end. That might be on like hand-carved oak wood and you know gold wheels and shit like that. You might have different kinds of, uh, I mean, glass domes and trays, like the whole works. It can be extremely cost prohibitive for restaurants to do. I mean, I, I just visited Providence recently and they just did a refurb and I was like, an, like, like a kid in a candy store because I was just touching everything. They had redone the upholstery. They got new chairs. They got new stemware. They got new everything. 
And my wife is looking at me <laughs> like she usually does when she goes shopping. She was a merchandiser in, in, in high fashion and she would touch and feel fabric. And it dawned on me, I was like, oh my gosh, I act like her when I'm in a restaurant. I'm feeling things. I'm touching things. I'm asking questions. And I was so giddy because they got the good shit. And not every restaurant needs to have it. But when you get to a place where you can just tell everything is swanying, everything is meticulously designed and purchased with a specific sort of, you know, circumstance and situation, right? Like there was a corner right when you walk into this restaurant and they have these new lounge chairs that are specifically designed or purchased just for this corner with a table that was just the perfect amount of height to put your stemware down as you're having a cocktail. And not only that, there was a hidden drawer that the, the server that pushed out. So now you could have a tray of bar snacks, or maybe if you wanted to order, you know, an appetizer, you could have that. And just the, I was marveling again at the perfect amount of thought that went into each layer of this table, the seat, the cushions, the feel of the whole thing. It took a lot of thought. Not a surprise. They have one of the best front of house people, Donato, in America. And we're talking about one restaurant, but there's so many restaurants that do these things that may get missed by just regular diners. It's no different than when you're watching, um, when I watch basketball with Bill Simmons or Kevin O'Connor, and they're talking about things that I'm like, I don't even know what the hell you're talking about. It doesn't matter to me. I'm enjoying it regardless, but they're seeing it on another level. When I watch comedy or I watch a film with a director, they're seeing things that I have no idea what they're talking about, but it's so enriching for them. But I'm just like, it's a good movie to me. And I feel that's the same way for diners. And especially when it comes to stemware and the, the, the plates, the, the chairs, the tables, we're not even talking really about the design and the architecture and the fixtures. We're just talking about the things you're sitting on, the things you're feeling, the napkins, the, 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 the charger plates, right? The charger plate's a big thing. When you sit down in a restaurant and there's a plate that you're not eating on, but it's just there, it's sort of frivolous. It's almost like a throw pillow on a bed. You're like, why do you even have that? I love that shit. It's like a statement to a degree. You don't even serve food on it. It's just a plate to sort of have, to fill the gap when you sit down. And you can tell a lot about a restaurant and their intentions and their serious, serious goals by the amount of money they put into the silverware and to the plateware. And it's not cheap. You have plates that can be 300, 400 plus dollars per plate. And when you're talking about a restaurant that might do, let's say, it's a 15 course tasting menu. And maybe they're doing different tasting menus for each table. One table of four might have a combination of 120 dishes on 120 different plates, potentially. That's like, that's crazy. Think about the storage you would need. And these are the things that cross my mind. I'm like, oh man, the restaurant looks small, but they must have a warehouse or some building next door to store all of these things. So it's never as simple as it seems when someone that's in the business sits down to look at like what's going on. There's a lot of calculations, at least it is for me. And I know it is for my other friends that are in the business sitting down in a restaurant. It's never as what it seems. It's much more than just looking at, oh, is this a Limoges or is this a a Bernardo plate or whatever, right? Another thing is you want to look at the sourcing of these things because at the end of the day, there's probably like 
10 to 12 main manufacturers of super high-end stuff, just like there are cars. But just like there are cars, you have another layer of manufacturers that are doing one-offs. The McLarens, the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis, the, I don't even know the names of the cars, but they're extremely expensive and they're all custom-made. And they may be from Asia now. They may be from Japan. They may be bespoke somebody from Italy. And when you find out that this person or this restaurant has this stuff, you get jealous and you're also like, oh, these guys mean business. It doesn't always, you know, deliver on the plate, but it says a lot when somebody is putting a tremendous amount of expense and it's not even the food yet. It's literally the things that most people, I don't even think give a shit about. But there's, there's a sense of purpose, and it feels good to have a nice fork. It feels good to have a nice spoon. And simultaneously, that's on one end of the dining. I would rather, my personal belief for many years was, I'm never going to afford that. That's too expensive. But, you know, as we open up some nicer restaurants, getting the nice steakware, right? Getting knives custom made, right? Getting a Leo knife from... France, where Michel Bras was famous, the most, one of the most famous chefs in France, like getting these certain knives is a statement. But on the, again, on the other hand, when I wasn't able to afford these things, I just wanted things that were indestructible. I loved campingware plates. <laughs> you know, I love cheap, cheap, the cheapest plates I could get in Chinatown, but not cheap that they would break or chip. They were literally felt like ceramic that were indestructible because it was also a statement. It was, I don't give a shit about anything else. I just want a plate that gives you the food as effectively and efficiently as possible. I want really sturdy glassware. I'm not going to give you multiples of plates. We're going to give you a bowl, a small bowl, a small plate, and like a shallow soup plate. That's about it. I really appreciate when I go to a restaurant as well. Another example is, you can even go just paper plates. It doesn't always have to be super fine dining stuff, although I appreciate it. I haven't been to the new Superiority Burger yet, but I'm pretty sure Brooks Seedley's excited about cooking on actual plates because, you know, when he first opened up in the East Village, he was serving it in paper cups, you know, and French fry boats. I thought when that happened, I was like, wow, you have one of the most talented chefs in the world putting food in French fry baskets. I thought that was awesome. That can also get tiresome, but it's an either or proposition. It's either super, super, super high end and you're getting the rarest of the rare stuff or you're serving food in things that are super cheap. If you try to serve food on the middle, I I think it loses its purpose. It doesn't have something to say. Point of view is very important. And at the same time too, everyone has access to the same thing. So how do you find a way to make sure that your stuff is different than everyone else. When you reach a certain level of success, some chefs have their own plateware, right? There's a few chefs that I know literally that have their own plates that are designed for their restaurants. And that customized stuff is very expensive. But on the other hand, you don't always have to. I think about this restaurant called Jubaco that was in the East Village of New York. And it really was an influential restaurant because it was sort of the first sushi restaurant that wasn't in Midtown, that wasn't a traditional Japanese sushi And, you know, I, I, I knew a bunch of the chefs that worked there. It opened up in 2000. 
and it was a husband and wife team. It was awesome. It was a little jewel box. And it was the first time that I saw that they had sushi, uh, sake cups and plateware that was just like a mismatch of things. It looked like they had bought stuff from, you know, someone's garage. And that to me was an influential moment in when you were going to buy stemware or the things that you're going to put in your table because it didn't have to be super high end. It just had to show that you had thought and care in it and it was curated. And I remember asking them and they're like, none of this stuff was expensive, but it felt personal. And that's what I mean. I don't like going to restaurants and I feel things that are completely impersonal. Sometimes we do that intentionally because you, you want to shift away the focus from the design and the core and you just want it on the food. So it's just something that I would recommend to anybody opening up their first restaurant. A lot of times you don't have the budget to do so. So if you're not going to buy the cheapest of the cheap, which I love, spend time, go to garage sales, go to any place that's doing secondhand stuff. And I think you can find a treasure trove of things. So again, I'm always looking for the feel of silverware, the weight. It's very important to me. And sometimes if you have a spoon that's too nice, you're, you're going to find that they get stolen too quickly. Cooks steal spoons. I'm just telling you the truth. It doesn't matter if a cook has never stolen a thing in their life. When they walk into a restaurant and if they feel a spoon is really nice and has a nice well and a nice weight and it's evenly distributed, there's a high probability that they're going to steal that fucking thing. And it may not be the, serve, it may not be the spoon that you're eating with. It might be a serving spoon. It might be the demitasse spoon that goes with a coffee. Spoons get stolen the most. Just ask any restaurateur. And I have to just throw an entire industry under the bus. Most of that is by chefs. So be careful about getting spoons that feel too fucking good. The other one is plateware, right? Like, I, I really love that nice plate. And it's something that I have a problem about not looking at who's making it. It is, I would think it looks really rude <laughs> because you're sitting at dinner and you're just lifting up the plate and you're trying to find who made it. And I, it's just a habit that I can't stop. I always try to feel the plate. I want to feel the craftsmanship. And just because something thin or it's like bone china, it, again, tells you a lot. Or again, I'm looking for the feel of a plate if it's indestructible. I love that as well. And the other, again, is, is the stemware. That's a big, big, big marker of what a restaurant is trying to do. So usually the thicker stemware at a restaurant, I hate to be a snob, but if it's got a really thick base, I won't say all the time, but listen, I know wine people. Some of you guys are my friends and you guys had laughed at us because our stemware sucks so much for so long. <laughs> right? Because we never really had that. I remember early days of Samba, we had the cheapest wine glasses possible because again, it was an aesthetic of what we were doing. But as we grew and I remember moving into the new co, I was like, shit, we got to, we got to really throw down and get the nice stemware. And again, finding someone, one of the hardest positions to find is someone that is just going to polish your nice stemware because it's all done by hand and it's a pain in the fucking ass. And I remember that was like a step up for us. That was graduating. And sometimes if I go to a place and it's, I'm expecting to be at a certain quality and the stemware sort of isn't up to snuff, I have to admit, I'm a total fucking snob. I would rather, you know, I would rather just drink out of a tumbler or something like that. 
So those are the three things that I'm looking for. Definitely sounds snobbish, but I also understand that I have low-end taste on that matter as well. So, yeah, just a note. Be careful about the spoons. And again, I would also say, if you have a really nice steak knife, I remember when APL at his restaurant, you know, he was worried that people were going to steal him. Just in general, that's the problem with having too nice shit. People steal this shit. And they're very good at doing it. So just be forewarned. All right, we'll come back with, with a, a slice. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs, scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Well, I got a two slides. One just happened. I'm looking at my iPad right now. And I didn't realize that I didn't have any battery juice in it. It's totally dead. So here's a thought. I love Apple. They don't sponsor this podcast. But if I had like a reminder on my phone, hey, your iPad has no battery, just like it does with my AirPods. It tells me you don't have any battery life. Time to charge it. It doesn't tell me, but they should. So Apple, if you're an Apple engineer, software person, Put in some update where it allows you to remind yourself to charge your fucking iPad so I don't have to look at the phone. And the reality is, the reason I'm upset about that, if I was 10 years younger, I wouldn't fucking care. But I can't read the goddamn phone. I'm turning 46. I'm 40, not 40. I'm turning 47 this year now. Old fucking guy. I'm getting white hair on my face. And I don't know. Here's... <laughs> I don't know how to make the font larger on certain kinds of apps. I don't. And there's a certain amount of ego at the same time when I'm with my friends. Like, for example, when I'm with Chris Bianco, I love him. But when I look over at his phone when he has it out, I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, man. Those are like 100 size font. I can't, I can't do that. I got too much pride to look at things that that big. And most importantly, I don't even know how to make it that size. I know how to do it on the phone, but it doesn't apply to everything. Anyway, I'm saying I'm having a hard time reading right now. Mainly I blame the iPad. So I blame Apple because they didn't tell me that I needed to plug in my iPad and I'm having a hard time reading this thing. And I have like six pairs of reading glasses, but I I tend to forget them. And if if I just want to know if anyone else is like me that is coming of age where their vision is going to shit and they refuse to wear glasses, simultaneously refusing to make the 
the font on their screen on their phone larger because they're just straight refusal. I refuse to have big font on my phone. And unfortunately, you guys suffer because I can't read any. But the real slice I wanted to say, I never drove that much in my life until moving to Los Angeles. In New York, we had a car for a couple years, but never really drove it. I I mean, it's one of those things. Everybody wants a car in New York, but then when you have a car in New York, you rarely drive it. Here, drive it all the time. I got to say the thing that I hate the most right now, and this happens to me at least once every day, is making an unprotected left-hand turn. And what I want to say about this is if you've never experienced peer pressure in your life, right? Oh, do this, drink this, right? The normal societal peer pressure things that one might experience, right? You're being feeling like you're forced, coerced to do something that you may not want to do. It's dawned on me that making an unprotected left-hand turn is literally the most peer pressure you've ever had with total fucking strangers, right? Every time. I'm, the, I'm, I'm making what I feel like to be a dangerous turn. I can't see the car in front of me. I can't see the car like that's on the other lane, maybe because it's a truck on their left lane, and I'm supposed to make a left-hand turn. I hope you know, know what I'm talking about. And every time, even if it's not a busy street, even if there's like no cars, as long as there's a car behind me, I feel compelled and forced to make a dangerous turn. And I hate it. It's the worst. It's the worst feeling in the world. And I don't know why I care about this person's opinion. I'm never going to talk to them again. I'm never. Maybe I might get a glance at them in the mirror. Maybe they're going to flick me off. But like, what the fuck is the big deal? There's, it's even more stressful when it is high traffic. When it's bumper to bumper and it's unprotected. There's no lights. And you got to cut across and make a left-hand turn. And in LA, it happens a bunch because you're going through neighborhoods and going through through streets. I got to say, that scares the shit out of me. It scares the shit out of me. And you know what I do now? I make a right-hand turn sometimes. Yeah. Because the reason I make a right-hand turn, you know, I get so much pressure. I feel so much pressure from the car behind me, right? Then I'm like, sometimes there's no way. There's no way that you can make a left-hand turn because there's oncoming traffic on one end. There's just no way, right? That feeling of waiting for that opening takes an eternity, feels like an eternity. And when you see like six to seven cars behind you and they start honking their horn, I'm sorry. I don't, for someone that's as bullheaded and stubborn as me, I completely give in. And I'm like, I, I, I got to get the fuck out of here. And I don't know why. I don't know why I care about total fucking strangers. It's not like they're going to write my license plate down. It's not like I'm ever going to talk to them again. But um, it's not like I'm getting better at it either. I don't like doing it. It's, it's not that I can't do it. I don't, I don't like the stress of the people behind me. I don't like, for whatever reason, making them angry. What about you guys? Wait, Dave, let's real quick. So 
the moment they honk, which could be a completely arbitrary, yeah. like, doesn't matter. Whatever they do, doesn't matter. Do you not feel like the biggest failure in the world when they honk? You're just like, oh my God. I know. I feel like such a loser. <laughs> I feel like the biggest loser in the world at that moment. And I don't like the feeling at all. I hate I, it. I thought I was above this, but I was actually, as you know, a couple minutes late today. And I was behind somebody who was making an unprotected left turn. And I started to kind of get a little antsy. And I was like, come on, man. Come on. Come on. And I was, I just started saying, come on. Like, really loud. Like, come on, dude. Come on. You can please. do this. Right? Like, I was like, you can do this, man. Just come on. Don't be a chicken. Just, just do the turn. I, I, it sucks. I'm, so I'm happy you are, you know, out of the closet, too. It gives you agita. It makes you feel nervous and oh, terrible. 100%. Corey? Yeah, I, I almost got in a road rage, like, fight on Saturday. <laughs> it was really bad. I was, uh, this guy, like, almost hit my car, and then he was behind me, and so, like, whatever. I'm, I, like, slow down, because I'm trying to parallel park, and he, like, he does the thing where he, like, comes up right on your rear bumper, so you can't actually back up in parallel park, and so oh, we're on. We're so this is an other. interesting, this is a new, this is another situation. Wow, I didn't even think about this. This is actually extremely stressful. Yeah. We, you are stopping, blinkers on, because you're trying to get into a spot, parallel parking. So, therefore, anyone behind you has to wait and stop. Well, so it was two lanes. So, he could have gone around to the left and just gone about his day. But he chose to, like, ride my bumper and prevent me from backing up into the spot. And then he's, like, honking at me. I'm flipping him off. Then he, like, <laughs> he, like races around my car and goes in front of my car and stops his car. And then it's like, okay, this guy's about to like get out and this is going to be a thing. Um, what would he, happen if he came out and he like punched your window and broke your window? What would you have done? I'd probably just yell at him. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. If he's like actually going to start swinging, then it's like, okay, I'm giving up this parallel spot and uh, I'm going to like, it's not worth it at that point. But uh, usually I think when you like yell at people, they're not ready for that. And then they get kind of scared. I turn into a, like a really meek loser when I'm getting yelled at. <laughs> when someone else does something wrong, I become Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> when someone else does something wrong, I am like intolerable. If I do something wrong or I feel like I'm doing something wrong, I'm as small as a fucking tiny mouse. But that that's good though, because like <laughs> my way is just to escalate, which is never the right thing to do. And my like my wife was in the car, and after everything had like settled down, she was like, "You you were right in this situation, but like you were also wrong. Like you know what I mean." Road rage can bring the Incredible Hulk out of anybody, right? Anybody. I I, I want to see someone like Tichnot Han or some great Bodhisattva, living Bodhisattva. I want to see how they will de deal with road rage. You know, I'm not comparing it to genocide, but in, you know, if you can be calm with road rage, maybe everything else you reach nirvana. If you are just calm, I don't know. Victoria, are you a nervous driver when you have to make a left-hand unprotected turn? I am, but it, I kind of like it reverses for me. I've committed to being the person that will just stop and let all of the cars pass me by and like just let everybody be mad and be like, I'm not going until the lat, like the coast is super clear and then I'll go. But yeah, I feel the pressure for sure. I mean, 
for a while, I, I even had the baby on board bumper shirt. I didn't care what a loser I looked like. I didn't care. Everyone made fun of me. Everyone made fun of me. I didn't care. And guess what? No one else cared either. Nobody cares what kind of precious cargo you have on. If you don't go as fast as humanly possible, people get fucking mad. Anyway, I, I'm going to make a resolution. I'm going to make, I'm going to, I'm just going to take my time. I'm going to take my sweet ass time and I'm going to pre-flick off people. So every time I'm at, every time I have to make a left-handed turn, unprotected left-handed turn, I'm just going to stick out my arm and we'll flick them off right when I press stop, right when I'm at stop. I'm going to flick them off, pre-flick off, the pre-fuck you. All right. And by doing that, it'll prepare me for everything else. Because they're going to they're gonna think terrible thoughts to me anyway, so might as well just preempt them. Anyway, we'll take a break. We got an ask, Dave. Hey, Dave, Chris, you know and team. Big fan of the pod. Especially love passing off Dave's takes as my own in casual conversation. So thanks for that. Don't worry, dude. Or person. Or Kelly. Not dude. Many, many people have done that. Many chefs have done that. So for my question, what restaurants would you recommend for larger team dinners, 10 to 15 people in New York City? Budget is $200 a person. Wow, inflation. Personally, I would love something a bit out of the box. Usually we go to Catch or an Italian place. Man, I got to get out of my own head about being a snob here. I mean, I'm friends with Mark and the guys at Catch. And every time I meet someone that says, man, I go to Catch Steak, I'm always like, Part of it's jealousy because they're just so fucking busy. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah. They don't need my recommendation. Catch is super busy, man. But what's wrong with me that I can't enjoy that other people like catch? That's really my problem. Dude, I'm telling you. Those guys crush it. But I don't understand it. I don't understand that people think catch is their favorite restaurant. And simultaneously, I really appreciate how they operate their restaurants. I'm not taken away. I'm just saying that they're so busy. And I I just don't understand. Maybe I should have just done steakhouses. Yeah, that's right. Basically, it's just jealousy. Anyway, back to your question, Kelly. Um, and they're great dudes. And they're perpetually packed. Catch seafood, when that opened up, I was like, Jesus Christ, so busy. Catch steak in LA. It's insane how busy they are. So they don't need my fucking recommendation. But uh, I haven't eaten there. People love it. But I'm just always surprised that when people say their favorite restaurant, it's like, catch. It's never like one of the foodie spots. So what the fuck do I know? I guess I should just eat there and shut the fuck up. And I'm sure I'm going to love it. Larger team. So this is corporate dinner. I don't know. I, I, I think I would might do Wu's Wonton King in New York and get a giant king crab. That king crab will probably be $800 to $1,000. So maybe you could get two king crabs. That would be baller. Yeah, that's your dinner right there. Not just one king crab. I would get two king crabs. And each king crab, you get, you could theoretically get six courses out of that because they do three preparations of that king crab. So, they probably like 12 to 15 different. So you get six different courses of king crab. That's what I would do. 
for Chinese. For Korean, I probably would go to the, the like one of the new Korean steakhouses. There's one that's like exactly in that price range, $200, $250 a person. I can't remember the name, but I mean, you might as well call New York City like New Korea now because it's crazy. Everything's fucking Korean. There's so many new high-end Korean barbecue spots. I would probably think about doing one of those. If I wanted a, a, a big corporate event that's a little bit different, I might think about going to James Kent's restaurant that's really high up on Pine Street or Manhattan. That's Danny Meyer's restaurant just because you have the view. I've not eaten those restaurants, but people say the food's good, but the view is spectacular. And if you've gone there and it's a team dinner, I have to say New York still is like just a steakhouse town. It's always been a steakhouse town. Will be a steakhouse town. If you've never taken them to Luger's, you got to bring cash. It's awesome. Keens, we've talked about this many times. Keens is a great place. I, I would think about taking them to Keens. And another place that's celebratory, actually good for groups, would be Balthazar. You just have to organize that well in advance. I just think it's, when I think about going to New York now, it's the restaurant I always want to go to because it's so celebratory. I love restaurants that are full of tourists and locals simultaneously. It's, It's just a wonderful place. And that restaurant never gets old to me. And 10 to 15 people, they could probably get one of the back booths. Yeah. Also, I mean, it's not enough. If you go to the Bernadette, actually, I'd probably go to the Tin Building. And John George has a private dining room to the Chinese restaurant. That might be cool. I feel like I could be a good, pretty good concierge for New York, but that's enough. I, I probably would do Luger's, quite frankly. That would be my choice because it would be right at 200 bucks per person, I would think. And I don't give a shit about, one of the things that really bothered me was when they got a one-star review or a no-star review from the New York Times. I thought that was utter bullshit. It's a great restaurant. I love everything about it. It's an institution. And uh, I, w- I would say no. You know, thinking about, if you were in LA, I'd probably do the private room at Musso and Frank's. I love that restaurant. Um, yeah. That's about it. $200 a person. I feel like that's a, that's pretty up there for a corporate dinner. Or you can visit a Momofugo noodle bar. <laughs> yeah, I think at $200 a person, I, this must be like one of those like law firm dinners and things like that. I can we just idea. talk about prices? I mean, if you look back in the day, like tasting menus in the late 90s, or even say Union Pacific, a great restaurant. Can you look up the price for Union Pacific, Rocco de Spirito's restaurant? Or even like, yeah, let's just do Union Pacific. In 1998, I think tasting menus were like 60 bucks, 70 bucks. You know, I think Gramercy Tavern pre-fee was like $58. It's it's crazy how expensive things have gotten. And now you can go to I, I'm I'm pretty sure French Laundry when it opened up, it was like 88 bucks. 
when it first opened up. Look at the price point. I believe now it's $465. Anyway, it's amazing. And, and, and the reality is, it's, it, it needs to be more expensive. So uh, $200 used to buy you a lot, probably buys you not as much as it used to. That's for sure. But love this corporate, corporate expense accounts are the best, man. It was my, one of my biggest gripes when I first opened up. We'd be so fucking busy, but we wouldn't have any of those corporate dollars coming in. And corporate dollars are what, when people are like, oh, I hate my job, but fuck them. I'm just going to buy the most expensive bottle of wine I can. That's what happens all the time. So that's why a beverage program matters and having a SOM and having private dining is a money maker for restaurants. So if you're thinking about opening a restaurant, make sure you have some nice private dining and uh, the kind of decor where, again, when the economy is good, it is just flowing very heavily into spaces that can accommodate corporate dinners. It is a cash cow. All right, we'll take a break. We got a more if you know. What do we got? All right, let's kick it off with the uh, fuck Mary kill of some sweets. We got flan, creme brulee, and Portuguese egg tarts. F Mary kill. Flan, creme brulee, Portuguese egg tart. What can I just say? I don't know if I know the difference between flan and creme brulee, other than creme brulee has the. It's basically the same thing, except creme brulee has the, 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 the glass, the sheet of sugar glass. I mean, flan, I mean, flan's like tofu. I mean, you kill flan. There's no question you kill flan. You definitely fuck creme brulee because it's more interesting got better things to say, better stories. They might, you basically have an individual that looks exactly the same. One's just a little bit more interesting. One has seen a little bit more in life. They got better jokes, better stories. They're just deeper. Read some really cool books, have interesting choices of music. Another one, they listen to EDM. It's a simple choice. Flan, boring. And kill that for the interesting creme brulee. That's not even a question. Uh, but the problem is creme brulee can also be one-dimensional too. That interesting thing that they have is probably the only thing they have. And once you crack through that sort of facade, it's, it's basically flan, right? It's basically flan. So you, you have your fun for a night or two. Or three. Until you get bored with it. And then off you go. But the Portuguese egg tart. Let me tell you what. A really well done Portuguese egg tart is sublime. It is one of the true great culinary pleasures in life. You're talking about effectively a puff pastry or some kind of laminated dough. Although it doesn't always have to be. It can be just a tart shell. But I like it when it's. You know what I'm talking about, you know? You're talking about the, not the bunch of flaky layers? It is fl- flake layers, but sometimes it's just like a tart. I've had it where it's just like a, a pate brise tart. Oh. Um, and I could be wrong. Maybe it's a completely different thing. But what I love about a Portuguese egg tart 
there are the things that the, the holy grail of what I love in food and when it can be achieved is contrast. You have textural contrast from soft to hard, temperature contrast from cold to hot. And it has on your tongue, it's in contrast. It's in conflict in a, in a positive way. It's not even balanced, but it can go salt to sweet or sweet to salty or bitter. You know, you got a lot of things going on where you're just, it's like a perfect storm. There are a lot of dishes like that. Most of them are composed. Um, but a Portuguese egg tart, when done well, I feel hits that mark because you have, it can be salty. It can be sweet. It can have the texture from the crust. And then you get that, that, that soft decadence from the custard itself. And you get the, the temperature contrast. It can be piping hot and the outside can be room temp and almost cold. I just think it's awesome. It's something that can be infinitely interesting. That's a, that's a, that's, that's marriage material as far as I'm concerned. You know what I mean? Like you put a ring on that shit right away. (laughs) If you had a good Portuguese egg tart, you know what I'm talking about. If you've been to Macau or Hong Kong, because like, I mean, that's like, again, I always compare everything to soccer. That's like Premier League. Everything else is like a farmer's league when you have a Portuguese egg tart. But when you go to the the motherland of it all, especially Macau, yes, very good. Very good. You come back home married to something that you didn't know you were going to get married on a trip like that in a long-term relationship forever. Well, I don't know why you're laughing, you know. I don't want to imagine a Portuguese actor getting married, but... Uh... All right. What else we got? All right. So speaking of infinitely interesting, uh, so I want you to think back to your prep days. If you had to prep one thing for six hours, no finishing early, you just have to do it for six hours, what would it be and why? Something really cathartic. I'm really bad at flaying fish right now. It's something that I do believe that you need to do on the regular. But filleting fish, if you have a, 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 especially if they're really nice fish, it's awesome. I like it much more than, say, breaking down meat because sometimes that's just, you need a lot more work, right? If you have a whole carcass, it takes a lot of work to do saws and hammers and shit. So it's it's not as um, let's say cathartic, but it's not as relaxing and, and and as and there's something zen when you get in a groove of butchering fish and you break everything down and all the cuts are nice and it's just efficiency and movement all the time and your knives are sharp and you're just like boom boom boom, it's a beautiful feeling. I would say flaying fish is one. I would also say. I would probably say I love tornaying vegetables if my hands didn't hurt. So if my hands didn't hurt, if you can tornay vegetables, that people do it at all, but uh, it's like a seven-sided, it's a French technique of root vegetables. I hated it, but there's something beautiful about getting it done and doing it well and getting a whole stack of them. Uh, what is, Dave, what is that? What, what You take a vegetable and you just, you basically take like a like a like a rectangle, like a 
one inch by like four inch, three inch vegetable cube and you peel it down into a football. I love that, except that now my hands hurt just if I do like two of them. And honestly, people say that maybe you learn it forever and uh, it's always going to be good. That's not true. I mean, I used to be extremely good at it and I suck at it now. There's so many things I used to be good at that I I just am not good at anymore because I don't do it. And you might say like, well, how's that possible? Like, well, name any. It's There's some athleticism to it all too. It's Michael Jordan, I'm not comparing myself to Michael Jordan, but he ain't Michael Jordan of old, you know? He's just fucking old. It's hard to do the things that you used to do. So on knife work, I would say that another thing I like to do is sharpen knives. If I could just do that, I mean, I don't know if I've ever done six hours, but there have been days on like a day off that I will just sit down in front of the TV and sharpen my knives. And that might take three hours. There's something very, very relaxing about it. Again, that same zone, once you hit the zone where you're not thinking, you're just doing. I think rolling pasta is another. I love rolling by hand. But I don't know if I could do it for six hours. I mean, I don't know if I could do any of these things for six hours. Let's see here. What could you do? I mean, the thing is, you cook for six hours, standing up and down. But the... the I, you know, another thing I would say that I love to do is, uh, is making gnocchi or making... I wouldn't say stuffed pasta as much, but there's something really satisfying in making a agnolotti or a plini. Anything that, it just feels so nice when you have the seal. It's not the same when you're making dumplings or ravioli because it's so, I don't know. Again, it's just me when I think about the contradiction of torneing something but versus one. There's, there's just something really satisfying when you seal a whole sheet of pasta and uh, it just feels great. I think, I don't know if I could do anything for six hours, but there, there's things that you can do in a kitchen that feel good. Like, if you canal really well, it feels good. If, again, what we talked about, it, it feels like a magical ability where you can just do that. Slicing fish after it's filleted feels good. Like, you, you just slice fish perfectly, feels good. Just talk to any sushi chef. It's like slicing fish is a beautiful thing. You're just one with your knife and you use the entire length of your yonagi. What else feels really good? Basting meat feels really good. Erosé, that's the French term for basting, feels very good. It's the sound. It's the clink, 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 clink. And the smell, the thyme, the garlic, the, 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 just, it's, it's awesome. I also love putting bay leaf, fresh bay leaf in there. And the, the bernoisette that develops, that smell, it is the best smell in the world, but it's a smell you would never want as a car freshener. It is the best real smell in the world. What else is awesome that I love? I think that's about it. I like opening oysters. Oh, that's right. I really love opening oysters. Yeah, you'd be an oyster shucking champion. No, I could have. We're working on something. About oyster shucking. Can't say much more than that, but. Um, there's something beautiful about opening oysters, about knowing 
that each oyster will open up differently. That each oyster, every oyster has its, like an Achilles heel spot that once you hit, it's going to open up. And when you do it well, there's something about when you pop open that oyster and you take the abductor muscle off and you look at it and it's just like all the liqueurs in it. And then you look at it and it's just that liqueurs to the meniscus of the oyster. And it's just, you know, it really does is a sexual, sensual thing when you look at that oyster and then you, you, you release it from the bottom and it just looks like perfection, right? Something those guys at the NFL Ringer fantasy show will never understand. Literally, perfection is sitting in their mouth and they don't even know what the hell it is. It's sad. It makes me sad. It's not even sitting on their face. It's in their mouth. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, we're going to get into some more random topics. Uh, if you could be the best in the world at one bar or pub game, what would it be? And oh, I listed wow. a couple. You know, I think of all the moist, this is the best question you've ever developed. And every sport has its thing. I think darts, the thing is this, being good at darts doesn't mean anything in America. It's really a UK type of thing. Being good at snooker is really the only thing. And I don't really want to be good at billiards because, I mean, that's basically the equivalent of playing Dungeons and Dragons, like that same group of people, but they just smoke cigarettes. <laughs> That's really the same thing. People that play billiards and pool are this just, again, if you're going to the Hefeweizen principle, they were like the, you know, they, they, they just deviated from drinking whiskey into scotch. It's the same group. I'm joking. I'm only saying that because I was terrible at billiards. Terrible. But you got to pick. Which one's it going to be, man? Darts is pretty cool. I think it's probably the coolest, but shuffleboard on a bar with the sawdust is also, it's amazing. But the reason why I'm going to say no is each, each shuffleboard is different. They don't all play the same, which is why I don't know I would be that. Like, because... If you're really good at shuffleboard, that means you're also just a degenerate at that bar because that's all you do, right? I think it's really hard to be good at shuffleboard at all kinds of shuffleboard boards, which is why I'm going to give you a, um, and trivia's, trivia's another thing. It's like, if you're good at trivia, that's an oxymoron. You, you don't live in a bar. You know what I mean? You don't go to bars. And I don't want to be friends with people that go to trivia nights at bars. Just as me. So I'm going to give you one that um, I think is the right answer. If I was going to be good at one bar game, it's going to be a game that I could be good at any bar. I think that's important. It's like being able to play the piano. You can play on any piano. It's awesome. So if I was going to be good at one game that isn't just for losers, it would be Golden Tee. Because when you are good at Golden Tee, you strike fear in the hearts of everyone around you. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. If you're good at Golden Tee. That's you... mad respect. People are like, whoa, you know why? Everyone, it's just a ball. It's a spinning ball. So we're, just, just to clarify, Golden Tee is like an arcade game where people simulate golf using a ball slider. And it is, uh, it is notoriously difficult. <laughs> like, it's... And the reason why you strike fear in the hearts of everyone else at the bar is because everyone's played it. And they know while you can play it, 
it's really difficult to be great at. And if you're great at golden tea, I mean, that's, that's cool because, you know, I don't think, I don't put in the same, you're a loser vibe as anything else. So for me, it'd be golden tea. And I admire anybody that's great at golden tea. A potfather himself thinks he's a great golden tea player, but I just don't think he's that great. I've seen it. Ooh, shots fired. I've seen Dave Jacoby smoke him. <laughs> we used to have a golden tea in the office, at the old ringer office, Sunset Gower. And I never saw Bill play, though. I don't know. I mean, one night I went out with the both of them, and uh, I just watched and marveled that Bill was talking a lot of smack. And I don't know Jacoby that well, but clearly they've had many nights playing golden tea. And again, I, I have a hard time believing that it's an even matchup in... You know, Bill certainly won games against Jacoby, but I think Jacoby's won way more over the years. That's my that's my feeling. So, without a doubt, I would say the right answer to this question is Golden T. All right. <laughs> Tell me, that's a good answer. We should get one of those machines, dude. Like, can't be that expensive, right? Um. Okay. And the reason why another reason why going back to the trivia game, yeah. The one game that I feel like I would be good at is um, like the highlights game or choose something that is odd in this picture. <laughs> the reason why you can't say that is almost all of those bar games are of naked women. <laughs> yeah. And you can't play that game. I'm with you. Can't play that game. <laughs> Let's move on. All right. So you have one of those tweener layovers where it's too long to do nothing, but it's too short to leave the airport. So best domestic airport for grabbing a bite. Wow. Best domestic airport for getting a bite. I can tell you right off the bat, the worst, one of the worst airports in the world is Salt Lake City. Denver. Uh, unfortunately, they were with my airline of choice, Delta. Atlanta has... Um, they got a lot of options in, in, in Atlanta. Oh, my God. What's my fried chicken of choice in, in Georgia? It's not Chick-fil-A. Bojangles? Bojangles, thank you. There, there's a Bojangles in, the, in the Atlanta. There's a Chick-fil-A in Denver. There's a Chick-fil-A. I just don't like Salt Lake City. I don't like Denver. I think Austin's got a good one because you can get Salt Lick on the way there. Even though, you know, small. SFO, San Francisco, they tend to think that they got a great airport, but they don't. <laughs> Just saying. like It looks like it should be awesome. They got a yoga room. That doesn't mean the food good. And I also question the SFO airport because at the Delta terminal, you walk in between uh, from like security, you walk past these Hall of Fame Canton-like bronze busts of all the great Bay Area athletes. And I'm like, some of those people weren't that good. Anyway, I digress. I got to say, it's hard for me to say anything and it's getting better. I'm going to say this decade and uh, and something that we're, we're thinking about doing a lot more of is just airport stuff. I think it's getting better. I think El, LaGuardia is getting better. It's getting better. So I'm not just saying they all suck. No, no, no. 
I know that there's, you can have good food at airports. It's gotten so much better. The reason why I'm just hard on it is when you go abroad and you go to Asia, you want to eat at airports. And that's the difference. Really, the only one that I'm picking, making fun of is SFO. Like, you can have Bojangles and you can have fast food, you can have everything. But I feel like the options at SFO are not as great as it could be. But if you have to compare it to 10 years ago, every airport in America serves better food. There's not just, I just don't know why they can't make the, 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 those sandwiches that get sold at uh, Hudson News better. They're so bad. They're so bad. I mean, and I don't know how a ham and cheese sandwich is $18.99. Just boggles my mind. And why does a uh, Caesar salad have to be so bad as well? It doesn't have to be that bad. But I digress again. When I'm in Haneda Airport in Tokyo, it's like, I want, here's the difference. If I'm traveling throughout Asia, I almost want to stop off at Haneda Airport because I want to eat there. There's a Roku Rinsha. There's an, in the terminal, uh, one of the terminals, the international terminal. There's another new ramen spot that's supposed to be good at Haneda. Incheon has really good food. Singapore, the airport of Singapore is off the fucking hook. It is insane how good that place is. You want to go a few hours early. That's my feeling when I go to Singapore. I want to go to the airport early to eat. When I was in Istanbul, the airport there, delicious. It doesn't even have to be that good. You could go to Copenhagen. The only thing you have in Copenhagen is... um. There's a lot of Joe and the Juice, weirdly enough, but they have these like Copenhagen like hot dogs that are delicious. So it doesn't have to be something fancy. It can just be something simple as long as it's good. But I would say Asia is just on a whole nother ballgame. Let me also take that back. Italy. Rome has a great airport for food. Spain has good. I mean, you're really just getting, you know, sandwiches, but they're with, with jamon and stuff. But I felt that the airport food in Italy, Italy number one, Spain number two, France number three, Germany's not even on the list. So that would be, I mean, but Charles de Gaulle sucks. It's been a while since I've been to Heathrow. So anyway. Pretty solid. All right. Uh, a little bit more off topic. Toilet paper. Hang it over or under with the sheet facing out or inside. All right. This is not, l- less about a moif and more of uh, I think about this all the time. There's two things I look at at a bathroom. And I'll, I, if I haven't told you a story about Joe Chang and the back of the toilet, um, I'll tell you in the next podcast. But in general, even if I'm in my own establishments or any establishment, really, I can judge the health and quality of a restaurant by a couple things that are happening in the bathroom. Back of the toilet's one thing, but clearly it has to be hanging over. The toilet paper has to be hanging over because, I mean, that's what it was designed for. The second thing is your paper towels, if it's a place that has paper towels. Even if it's just a stack laying in top of a, like a, a little ledge or it's in a paper towel dispenser. It doesn't even have the bathroom. It could be in a kitchen. One of my, probably my top five pet peeves in a kitchen is when 
the sea folds, the actual, like they call it a sea fold because it's shaped like a sea if you open it up. It's facing the other direction. So you cannot pull them out like they're tissues. It is the littlest, most lowest hanging fruit thing to do properly. And maybe it's a porter that does it, but oftentimes it's the cooks that do it. And the reason why I say it's such an important signifier of what's happening in the kitchen, if you don't care about that, then you're not going to care about anything else. But I also say it has a huge impact in your operations in, if you're a cook. If you're a cook that gives a shit, you're going to be washing your hands a lot. You're going to be cleaning your hands a lot. You're going to be using sea folds quite a bit to, to take oil off of food, et cetera, et cetera. And every time the sea folds are facing the other way, where you can get it, but you have to pull out like five of them. But even if you don't pull out five of them, honestly, I'd say it's half a second to maybe two seconds max of trying to find some surface area where you can pull it out. That's an utter waste of time. And it's just not efficient. So if a place doesn't have that, or if I see a station and the cook's sea folds are facing the other way, I'm not, I mean, it's like if I was a football coach and this running back keeps on fumbling the football and not studying game film. That's how I feel. You know, it's like, Corey, you're a musician. Like, have you played with somebody before? And they may be really good, but they're always out of tune and their equipment is not maintained and they're never ready to play. Yeah. <laughs> I was in a band with a guy who, you know what a tuner pedal is? Like, if you're a guitarist or bassist, you have your pedal board or whatever. One of those pedals has to be a tuner. You can tune your guitar, you tune your bass. That's just how it works. I was in a band with a guy who like didn't believe in that. And I was like, I don't believe in you being in this band anymore. <laughs> like, if you're just going to be out of tune, yeah. you shouldn't be here. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be pretty extreme, but I, I love it. And I'm trying to be very diplomatic here. I have a hard time, especially if a cook has been doing it long enough, and if they don't care. I now can understand that maybe something's going on and, and maybe something's not right. But usually it's an indicator, to, in my opinion, of someone that doesn't give a fuck. And if you don't give a fuck, that's a problem. And it drives me crazy. It usually means something is rotten, right? Something is going wrong, and I don't know what it is, right? Something is taking away from the attention to detail that matters and it's all of those things. Once you stack them all up, that's what makes a consistently great restaurant. And I will also tell you, I've been part of my own restaurants where I walk in, I'm like, what the fuck? How are we doing this? It's, it's an ongoing battle to get people to do the littlest things like that. So even though it's not the toilet paper hanging that way, in, in my mind, it's sort of the same thing. The things, there are many things in a restaurant, in a kitchen, front of the house, where it really doesn't matter. But it does matter. And I think a toilet paper hanging the right way is one of those things that does matter. And I would also tell you, sometimes it's the owner that's doing it because it's a small restaurant, but oftentimes it's a, maybe a large organization. And if you have somebody that's, again, in the hierarchy of things, someone that's cleaning your bathroom is on the hierarchy of decision-making, probably on the lower tier of that culture, right? Hopefully. You know, it's upwardly mobile, but at the end of the day, it's like, again, my dad cleaned a lot of toilets. He gave a shit. And why did he care? Because, like, 
that was just the culture he grew up in in that restaurants that he worked in. So if you have people that are on the lower level, like the first entry-level position, they care about doing it the right way, it tells you a lot about everything else. So it's very hard. I'm also telling you that there are, this is a fight that every single restaurant has to deal with by far. All right. All right, I'm going to skip to this last one uh, real quick. So a wish-granting genie has only two, two superpowers left to grant, and you can only pick one. One, Dave, you can teleport and appear anywhere in an instant, instant. But everyone on the planet knows you are the only one who has this ability. Or two, you will never run into traffic when you drive ever again. But only your friends and family know you have this ability. Which one do you pick? Well, that's easy. I'm teleporting everywhere. <laughs> I mean, and once people come to me and they're like, oh, that's the dude that teleports. I teleport out of there. <laughs> But what if it's like, hey, Dave, like, we really need you here. Like, can you make it? And you're just like, I don't want to go. But like, how are they talking to me? Like, they're probably just like texting you, right? No. If I have the means of teleportation, I get rid of cell phones. <laughs> There's no smartphone. Because I'm everywhere, man. <laughs> you're always present. I'm going to be checking in on all the things that are happening all the time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I shopped this and it was like, it was weird because the answer was like, oh, but if I was Dave, I would never have that ability because like everybody would want me everywhere. And no, I, just I, would ne- I would be totally unplugged because I'm plugged in to the universe. <laughs> you can go anywhere. So again, my theory is if you can scroll through your phone for 200 messages, if you're not on that list of 200 text messages or phone calls, you're not in that person's life for the most part, right? That would be in my head of like, oh, these are the, 200 people in my life that I'm going to visit probably every day. So why do I need them to contact me? It's going to be awesome because I can just be like analog. Be like, yo, let's meet at that tree at the park at three o'clock. Done. I'm there. How do you know what time it is if you don't have a phone, Dave? (laughs) That's called a watch. Your nice little Casio watch, the digital yeah. Casio watch. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. That sounds like a nightmare. It sounds awesome. <laughs> Can I ask a question? How do family trips work if you have teleportation? They still got to get on the on the plane or whatever and you just, <laughs> you're just like, I'll see you there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, a, that's, that's the real conundrum, right? And I can't teleport them if I'm hugging them. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, why would you do that? Listen, like I, I have that issue right now because I have global entry and Grace doesn't. Right? And you know, what do you do? So I'm just saying like, if I have that moral dilemma, which is a real dilemma for me, like, oh man, like I could wait with my wife and it's not an issue or I could just go right through and wait for her on the other side. It's ah, a real tough question. So I can imagine if I have the power, Grace, I love you, you know that. That's not even a question. But if I have the power of teleportation and you know that we have issues already about me being patient enough to wait through global entry when we're coming from abroad, imagine the conundrum I'm in. 
uh, I could fly 21 hours to New Zealand or I could meet you there. If I can't wait 10 minutes, how the hell am I going to do 21 hours? What if you? What if there's like a middle ground where you just teleport past the unpleasant parts of the airport experience, like teleport past security? Well, that's already a, a sore subject in my marriage that I can't wait 10 to 30 minutes. I'm like Larry David. I can't do it. I have a real fucking problem. So what am I going to do? I, You know what I'm going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do, you know. I'm going to be like Superman. I'm going to give up my powers and just become an indoorsman forever. That's how you do it. Because if I stay indoors, what's the point of having to leave my house anyway? And once I get those Apple, Apple goggles, I'm done. I don't have to go anywhere. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the genie superpower of being able to teleport anywhere. I'm going to strap those fuckers on. I'm good. I'm good. I don't have to go. I can go anywhere without leaving my bedroom. It's going to be fantastic. And I never have to have that issue with Grace. She's now going to say, we never leave the house. And that'll be my problem. All right. Give us five stars. Um, next week, we'll have Chris Ying back on. And uh, we'll come back with a more shortened version of Pro Football Food Weekly. We're going to get that dialed in. So uh, don't worry about it.